0: Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. Well, welcome once again uh, to f- our first week of Advent. Uh, it is great to be with you. Uh, Alona mentioned this this morning. But we did launch our morning service uh, this week uh, in Beacon Hill, and that was fantastic. It was a, a big success, uh, and that's something that is going to be ongoing. Some people have asked questions about you know, how long we were going to do that or what the plan was. The plan is to have a 10 o'clock service in Beacon Hill and a 5 o'clock service uh, here in Capitol Hill uh, until Jesus comes back. So uh, so if it's easy or easier for you all to get to Beacon Hill in the morning, uh, it's the same deal, same music, same sermon, probably a little better at Capitol Hill because you know I've done it once, worked out some of the kinks, some of the jokes that didn't quite work in the morning. I'm trying harder uh, in the evening. And, um, and so uh, that's, that's uh, it's good. It's exciting. It was, uh, it was a good time. And I told all those people there that they can tell their grandchildren that they were at the first ever Icon morning service. So they pre- probably will. Okay, so we're starting Advent, and I want to say this about Advent. Uh, For those of you who are maybe not as accustomed to celebrating the church calendar, um, Advent is technically pre-Christmas. So it is uh, technically speaking, we're not supposed to be singing Christmas songs until Christmas Day. That's when you sing the Christmas songs and then you enter into Christmastide. We are in the season of Advent. Uh, but I mean, let's be honest, who has that kind of self-control uh, to not sing Christmas songs yet? I know my wife doesn't. And uh, <laughs> In fact, she argued that, uh, which you know normally we would start listening to Christmas songs the day after thanksgiving, obviously it 's a biblical, uh, but this year she argued because uh, Thanksgiving was so late it was like the latest possible thanksgiving, apparently uh, that we should start on Monday of last week, so full confession, wanting to be vulnerable in the pulpit, we started Christmas music on Monday. Okay. And she convinced me of that by saying, Hey, we should start Christmas music on Monday. And I said, okay. Uh, (laughs) so that's how that went. So, uh, Advent is for the four Sundays preceding Christmas day. And this year we are following the four kind of themes of Advent of hope, peace, love, and joy. So this evening, um, we will start in John chapter 1, if you want to turn there, and we're going to explore this theme of hope. And we are actually, in case you care about stuff like this, we're going to be in the gospel of John through Easter. So we'll do John 1 for uh, Advent, and then we'll just keep on moving in January and get through probably the first five chapters of John uh, before Easter, and then we'll transition from there. I want to read to you from uh, a commentator named Frederick Bruner, who wrote a 1,300-page commentary on the Gospel of John, which is just a lot of pages on anything, uh, but it is, uh, it's brilliant. So you'll be hearing a lot from Bruner uh, over the next couple of months. He says this about the, this prologue to the Gospel. He says, one feels on holy ground when entering the prologue to the Gospel, here we have the overture to the symphony of the whole gospel, the preface to the greatest story ever told, the introduction to history's central fact, the foreword to the last word, and the preamble to the realities most trusted by the worldwide church. John 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to talk about hope tonight, and as we do so, I want you to think about this. All hope has two elements to it. Hope has an end, the thing that we hope for, right? There's, there's some end we have in mind, some experience or some outcome that we desire and hope has a means. The, the way in which we believe that end will come about something that has the power to bring about that chosen end that has uh, an end and a means. And so as we're talking through this passage and talking about this idea of hope, I want you to be thinking to yourself, what is it when I um, think about hope and, and you know, Hope can be a very trivial thing. We use the word a lot. It can simply mean, you know, I hope this happens, or I hope we win this game, or I hope people show up to church for once, and I hope this, or I hope that. Um, but when we actually stop and think deeply about the word hope, it also stands at the core of our our kind of uh, most human instincts and desires. All of us think about our lives and have a trajectory in mind. We have a hope in mind of how our lives are going to play out and in the midst of that also are depending on certain things to, to reach that goal. Maybe it's ourself, maybe it's our our, our effort, maybe it's our skills and abilities and our work ethic, maybe it's the people around us, maybe it's the privilege we've been born into, maybe it's the connections that we have, maybe it's the job, the money, the investments, the whatever. But we all are leaning on certain things that we believe will give us the outcomes we desire. And so the kind of hope I want us to talk about tonight and that I would love for you to be thinking about as I speak is that kind of core hope. What do you hope for your future and what are you depending on to get you there? Before we dive into the actual first five verses of John, I want to take a big step back and talk about John the apostle, John the disciple who wrote this book. Um, Jesus, as you probably know, had 12 disciples and within that had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, who were kind of known as his inner circle. And then John was probably among the closest to Jesus relationally. He calls himself in the gospel the one whom Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple, which honestly seems a bit presumptuous, but probably speaks to their level of relationship. And so John, this gospel was written after all of the other gospels. It's the latest gospel that was written, and at that time, John would have had some uh, awareness of and access to the other three gospels, and all three of the first gospels, which we call the synoptic gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—follow the same basic pattern and philosophy. They are chronological in nature and and more biological or biographical. Excuse me, biographical in nature in that they. They are telling the story of Jesus. Now, each of the synoptics has a different audience, and so they take on different flavors. Matthew uh, being more Jewish in nature, and so a lot more references to the Old Testament. Mark aiming at uh, Romans, and so very fast-paced and action-oriented, and so on and so forth. John's is totally different. John's is basically chronological, but not uh, detailed in any way. It doesn't really follow Jesus' actions as much as it follows his words. And so we might picture John many years after Jesus has died, reflecting back on his time and sitting down to write his account of his time with Jesus and thinking less about needing to write down all the details of how things took place and wanting to write a lot more about what it all meant. And so John takes this kind of big picture perspective when he looks at Jesus' life and he wants us to know what Jesus was, who Jesus was, what Jesus was about, what he taught, what it felt like to be in his presence. Prologue unique to John is this beginning. This prologue to the gospel that tackles these massive theological concepts. In fact, I've I've had to teach or had the privilege to teach this section several times in my life, and it's always a real challenge to me because this section is two things at once. It's profoundly deep and speaks to some of the biggest mysteries of the universe, but at the same time, very self evident. John has a way of writing that's very clear and simple even as he's talking about the nature of the universe. So we'll see this um, in this first sentence, John chapter one, verse one. He says, in the beginning... Was the word. Now, we've just been in Genesis together for the last 13 weeks. And so, this beginning here to John's gospel is going to immediately make us think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John does that on purpose. He calls us back to the very beginnings of time, calls us back to the very beginnings of the scriptures, and he does so on purpose. It's pretty remarkable that John would sit down to give us an account of Jesus and have to start with, well, before time began... Right. I mean, we in our community groups will often go around and tell our stories. Right. And we'll kind of use that as a way to get to know each other. And I have never been in a community group ever where someone sat down and was asked to tell their story. And they began with, well, in the beginning of time, I, I would immediately just get comfortable for a really long story but any person who would have to center their lives and, and kind of establish the setting for their lives as eternity is a person of real significance. And so John begins in, with the beginning in Genesis 1, calling us back to Genesis 1 to establish three things. The centrality of Jesus that we have to go back to the beginning to start to tell his story and that the end of his story is at the end of all things, that Jesus is center. He is the pivot point of all of human history. He goes back to the beginning to establish the eternality of Jesus, that the 33 or so years that Jesus spent on earth are not the totality of his life and impact, that in fact, this was just a little slice of who he was. So just this year, I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and yes, to my shame, I was 40 before I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This is more confession. It's probably good. You haven't read it, have you? Shame, (laughs) share my shame. But it struck me that this story of the Lord of the Rings is this epic tale that doesn't cover more than just a few years of time in Middle Earth, and yet speaks to a, a, the results of activities that happened hundreds of years before it, and then has an impact on Middle Earth for hundreds of years after it, and yet it only tells the story of these couple years in this kind of epic journey that was the pivot point of all history. Of Middle-earth. And the gospel is not different than that. It is the, the climax. It is the pivot point of all human experience, but it is not the totality of the story. So John calls us back to Genesis 1 to establish the centrality of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. We'll see here in a moment that he was present at creation and now again present at at recreation, that part of what is essential to Jesus' mission is his relationship to creation, that he called all things into existence and he calls all things into redemption. So what we have here, this story that John is introducing, is the pivot, not just from the Old Testament to the New Testament, not just from B.C. to A.D. chronologically, but it is the pivot from the sacrificial system to the, the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It is the pivot from the law to the gospel. It is the pivot from the world as it was known before Jesus to the world as it is known after Jesus. And inarguably, no human being has had more impact on the world than Jesus. So it makes sense that John would start with these words. In the beginning was the word because he has to get us to understand the scope of the story that he is about to tell us. But he continues. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Some commentators that I read this week argue that this is quite possibly the greatest sentence ever written in literature. And they say that because in this one sentence, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, John ties together at least five different themes, answers at least five different questions that were being asked by a totally diverse group of people that in one sentence he settles. Starting with first, creation's history, the scope of the implications. He says that this is the story about everything. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God establishes the scope of the story. That it speaks to the Jewish scriptures and the prophecies. So this is not a new story that appears out of nowhere but a continuation of a very long story that will find its fulfillment at the end of the scriptures in Revelation. Third, that this, he speaks to Jewish philosophy and one of the kind of wrestling Ideas or wrestling issues that Jewish philosophers had dealt with for some time was how God could be described as both transcendent and imminent at the same time. In their experience, gods were either transcendent and kind of wholly other and distant. Or they were hyper-local, and so a family or a tribe or a house would have a God. But there hadn't been a paradigm for a God who claimed to be the God over everything, and yet the God with Israel. And so they wrestled with this. You see this in Proverbs. You see this in Ecclesiastes. And what what a lot of Jewish philosophers had kind of settled on was this idea of a a uniting principle. And you see it uh, in Proverbs as the writer Solomon talks about the embodiment of wisdom. And he talks about it being a woman, that this this idea of wisdom or the word, or as we see here in John 1, the logos, which is translated as word, is kind of this summation, of the, the 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 totality of who god is both big and present with us that he speaks to greek philosophy in this one sentence the stoics called the logos, the generative principle of the universe. So Stoic philosophers in Greek philosophy said there's, there's something that holds everything together. There's something that is generative. It, it generates everything and holds all things together. And the word that they chose to use for it was logos, that is here translated word. And so what was the unnamed generative principle of the universe John here names, personifies. And lastly, in the years since Jesus' death and when John wrote his gospel, already people were arguing and discussing who was Jesus? Was he a man? Was he a teacher? Was he divine? Who was he? And in this one moment, in this one sentence, John answers that question. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and he was God. Both Divine and in relationship with God. We get the beginnings, the seeds of a Trinitarian understanding. Luther, in his commentary on John, speaks to this passage specifically saying, if Christ is not true and natural God, born of the Father in eternity and creator of all creatures, we are doomed. For what would Christ's suffering and death avail me if Christ were merely a human being like you and me? As such, he could not have overcome devil, death, and sin. He would have proved far too weak for them and could never have helped us. No, we much have a savior who is true God and Lord over sin, death, devil, and hell. The Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who I'm quoting here just to say his name out loud, famously argued that the solution to the riddle of life in space and time lies outside of space and time. And now Wittgenstein went on to argue that God has not revealed the solution to that riddle, but John here disagrees that Jesus is the solution to the riddle of life. Jesus Christ is the center of it all. And so philosophers and commentators and Bible translators and theologians have argued for a long time and really wrestled with how to translate this word logos that's here translated word. And in fact, some have argued that they should just leave it untranslated, that just, just put logos in there instead of translating it word, because then we who don't speak or read Greek would look at it and go, whoa, logos, that seems big and crazy and hard to understand. And that might be the best way to understand logos so john introduces us to this idea of who jesus is and what the stakes of this conversation are and now transitions to what he has done verse 2 he was in the beginning with god all things were made through him and only without him was not anything made that was made now So not only was Jesus present at creation, but he was the primary actor in creation, that all things were made through him. And John does kind of a funny thing here where he says it both positively and negatively, right? He says that all things were made through him and negatively without him was not anything made that was made. And it's almost as if John's going, listen, he made everything and in In case you're trying to think of a thing that he didn't make, no, you're you're wrong. He made that too. Whatever it is you're thinking of right now, no, he made that too, right? Like he's trying to make sure we all understand, right? So Paul picks up this theme in Colossians 1. says, Jesus is the image or icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So Paul picks up this theme, catch this, and says, not only were all things made through Christ, but all things were made for Christ as well. And, and that word for can kind of mean a, a couple of different things. And so it can be a little confusing. We might think that what he's saying is Jesus made all things for himself, that they're all his in some sort of like childish, childish selfish way. And I thought of a great illustration for this just this week. My daughter, who is in fifth grade, was having a, a Thanksgiving pilgrim kind of feast. And so she wanted to dress like a pilgrim. And so, of course, my wife uh, was going to sew her a pilgrim outfit like any good pilgrim would. And, of course, had to make a mom-sized pilgrim outfit for herself because that's what my wife does. So they were sewing these pilgrim outfits, looking a lot like pilgrims in the process. And uh, my my daughter kind of caught the bug for it and thought, this is pretty cool. I kind of like sewing. And so she wanted to make a purse. So we're like, great. So she makes this purse and she measures it out and she sews it up and it's a purse and it works. But when she measured the strap, she measured it so it would perfectly fit her. And so now the purse kind of sits on her hip perfectly. If I were to wear the purse, which I didn't, but if I were, <laughs> but if I were, it wouldn't fit me right. It's not made for me. Now, for my daughter, she made the purse. For her in the sense that it fits her perfectly, but she also made the purse for her in the sense that you can't touch it, right? And that's the difference between her and Jesus, okay, among several. So <laughs> when we read that Christ made all things or all things were made through him and for him, the argument that Paul is making is that he didn't just make all things and then set them off to be adrift, but he made them to be in relationship with him. So he is the source of all life, both in creation and in its greatest flourishing. Dale Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner, again says this, we're going to learn some two big words. He says creation is Christomorphic, write that one down, and Christophoric, right? You guys know these, but I'll just tell you. That means Christ formed and Christ-bearing, since all things were made by him and for him. He stands at the center. The English poet D.H. Lawrence has this little poem called The Third Thing, and it captures this idea perfectly. He says this, and it's a prose poem, so it doesn't rhyme. It's my favorite kind, because you can't tell if it's good. He says this, Water is H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. But there is also a third thing that makes it water, and no one knows what that is. The Christian faith believes that this third thing, holding everything together and giving each particular thing its unique identity, is the one who brought all things together from the beginning and who sustains them all in the meanwhile, the word of God, Jesus. But see, this is just the setup. Watch what he does next in verse four. It says, "In him was life, and this life was the and the life was the light of men." But I want to start with those four words: "In him was life." And uh, what's what's so fun about getting into a passage like this one is that you begin to have to kind of tease things out and figure out, okay, what does that mean? "In him was life." You might think, well. All of life came from him, flowed from him. So maybe it's just a kind of a statement of fact that in him was life in some sense, and then that life came out as he created. And that wouldn't be wrong. That is true, that in him is life. And we might even think that he is the source of all life, and that wouldn't be wrong either. But in fact, the Bible translators have really wrestled with this phrase because it's hard to tease out all the pieces. So one translator translates it this way. When what had been made was in him or in union with him, there was life. Here's what he's saying. John has just gone to great lengths to say that everything was made through the word and that not anything that was made was made outside of the direct action of the word and then says, in him was life that in relationship with him is life now here's how we know that it's not just a statement of fact in fact it's more than that because the word for life that he uses is in the Greek zoe and zoe is not just the word for alive as in not dead right so it doesn't read in him was not dead Okay, because that would be bios. The Greek word bios simply is about being alive or being dead. Zoe is more than that. There's a meaningfulness to life, a vibrancy, a flourishing. It is a life to be hoped for. And that's the word he chooses to use here. He's saying, listen, every little thing in the world, every tiny little detail in the world was made by God and made to fit God perfectly with him. One commentator says this way, I see in the verse, the gospel's first invitation to readers come into union with the word who made you and you will come to life. You came from him. Please come back to him. You were made for him. Um, uh, Last week in Beacon Hill, I, I used a quote from David Foster Wallace in his famous speech at Kenyon College where he talks about kind of the default selfishness or default selfness that most of us go through our lives with, that we just kind of see everything, and there's really no way to do otherwise, but we see everything in our lives through the lens of our own experience. So you all only exist insofar as you are in relationship with me, and that's how I think about you, if I'm totally honest. Um, But you think about me that same way, and we just kind of go through life as if we are the center, not just geographic, but existential center of the universe. John's argument here is that Jesus is the existential center of the universe, that Jesus is the axis that we were all made to orbit around. But... Most of us. And we have treat our life as if we are the center. We are the axis. And we have all kinds of relationships and all kinds of work and all kinds of people and all kinds of things. And often God Himself orbiting around us as the center. And John, in these four simple words, in Him was life, simply says, true life, zoe life, a flourishing life only happens insofar as you are orbiting around the axis that is God. That's the invitation. He is life for you and he is life through you. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And this word men is anthropos. It's literally all human beings. It's just humanity. That Jesus is life for us, and he is the light. He illuminates life, makes known life for all of humanity. That life in Christ is for all. Life in Christ is for us, life in Christ is for the whole world. And as we grow closer to Christ, as we become in union with Christ, that we actually have the opportunity to give off some of that light ourselves. I've noticed uh, in myself, and I've noticed in in many others, that we are attracted to people who it seems as if they are uh, kind of on the same trajectory that we hope our lives to be. And we kind of can consider them role models in some way. We follow them, we're inspired by them, we're moved by them. I know for me, There's a pastor in Dallas by the name of Matt Chandler who is a friend, acquaintance, whom every time I'm around Matt, I think to myself, I want to be a better pastor, I want to be a better Christian, I want to be just a better human when I'm around Matt. Some, uh, a couple years ago, my family got kind of obsessed with the musical Hamilton, and we played it in the car all the time, and my kids know all the words, and my wife and I got to go see it in New York City, and it was the best four hours of my life, don't tell my kids. And uh, it was fantastic, and I find every time I listen to the Hamilton soundtrack, I want to change the world. I'm inspired by Hamilton. We got Disney Plus recently, and uh, I was scrolling through that. I'm inspired by all of that. I mean, bed knobs and broomsticks, come on. And, uh, but I was scrolling through, and I saw that Remember the Titans is on there, and so I'm like, oh, i, I got to watch the speech, you know? And so I'm uh, not at work or anything, but like was watching the speech when Denzel is on the battlefield, and he's talking about the war and that they got to come together. And it, I, I'm sitting there, and I'm getting hyped, and I'm thinking, I want to win football games. For Denzel and defeat racism in the process, of course, but like I, I Denzel inspires me. I wanna be like him. Hamilton inspires me to be like him, but the difference between Denzel and Hamilton and Matt Chandler, wow, several, but the one that springs to mind currently is two of them make me want to be more like them one of them makes me want to be more like Jesus. In Matt, I I see what the possibilities of the kind of life in Christ that John's inviting us into might look like. So yeah, I'm looking at him, but I'm kind of looking through him and seeing what he's experiencing and what he's like as a result of it. And I want that. And that's, that's a possibility for us. That, that's what's on offer to us. As we grow nearer and nearer to Christ, we actually give off that light. In fact, our life's proximity to Christ is our greatest and in some cases only real witness. This is the end of our hope in Christ. Our flourishing, our Zoe life and that of those around us. what is the means you've probably guessed by now verse five the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it what's interesting about this sentence is to get really grammar oriented this verb shines is the only present tense verse in the whole paragraph That John's going out of his way to say there's one thing that's still happening here and the darkness has never, could never overcome it. That Christ's life is still shining. It shines on and on and on. The darkness of pre-creation couldn't prevent it. The darkness of sin could not blot it out. The darkness of the cross could not destroy it. And no amount of darkness in our lives can extinguish it now. Remember, John's reflecting back on the cross some 30 or so years after it happened and and writes this sentence as the, the, the beginning of his opus saying the darkness, that dark day where John stood at the foot of the cross to see his best friend and Lord and Savior die. When there was literal darkness that overcame at the moment of Christ's death, that that cross did not overcome the light. As dim as it seemed, as dark as it seemed, as final as it seemed, the light shines on. So we have two hopes. First, there is no darkness in you that the light cannot and has not already overcome. See, we hear uh, this idea that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, to redeem us back into relationship with him. And we might have one of two responses. One of, one of those responses may be, well, I don't, I, I've not done anything that would require God to die on a cross for me. But another response might be, no, I've done some things and there's nothing God can do to overcome what I've done. And what's ironic about it is both of those two responses, either responding with, I've not done much or I've done too much, ultimately has as its seed pride. Pride in either your good works or pride in your power to do evil, so much so that even God's power cannot overcome your power for evil. But the darkness Cannot overcome the light. Second, there is no darkness out there that can put out the light. There is nothing out there that can overcome Christ and his gospel and his church. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That there is nothing in here and that there is nothing out there that can overcome the light of Christ. Our hope for our future cannot rest in anything as shallow, weak, or petty as our jobs, our bank accounts, our investments, our families, relationships, success, skills, gifts, talents, or circumstances. It can only rest in the one who was there from the beginning, creating every little thing, endowing it with purpose, imprinting it with his image, and indwelling it with his presence for his glory And our good. The one whose light could not be extinguished by death itself, but still shines on, drawing us towards itself and in the process towards our true selves. That is why we hope during this season. That's why we can dare to hope that the future might hold something better for us. In spite of all the chaos and turmoil and the hardship and the pain, the suffering that is all around us, that we might be able to say, no, there's gonna be more, it's gonna be better because we rest not in anything that we can touch and taste and feel and see or take responsibility for, but we rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And in that alone is our hope. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.